I think that may be that may be the most frustrating thing to Trump of all is that he wasn't relevant to the conversation. Hello and welcome back to the interview, which has been on a lovely and extended break for Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's. I'm your host, Ada McLaughlin, and we're back with a great show to kick off the new year. I've got CBS News' indefatigable congressional correspondent, Scott McFarlane, who will walk us through the madness that marked the first week of the new Congress. Scott is one of the best reporters covering Capitol Hill, so I was really excited to speak to him about everything that went down last week. We discussed Kevin McCarthy's bruising fight for Speaker, the future of the rowdy new Congress, and the legacy of the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol two years on. Uh, Scott, how are you doing? Uh, were you able to get some rest this weekend? Well, I'm fine, but I, I got to tell you, when it's exciting on the House floor at 11 p.m. on Friday, I, I'm in my wheelhouse. <laughs> it's good times had by all. We don't usually get that type of drama on the House floor. We rarely get it at all hours of the night on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, I am going to ask you about the drama because that was crazy. First, though, now that we've had a few days to, to really process what has happened, could you give us the broad strokes analysis on the speaker fight that we just saw well we got what i believe to be either the first or the last enormous fight inside the republican party over the next two years that's either going to be every week of our existence over the next 24 months or the defining fight that allows the republican conference to move forward more steadily over the next 24 months that's really the big question now this faction that defected from Kevin McCarthy over the course of a week and allowed for 15 votes for U.S. House Speaker and allowed the House to become, to a degree, a political circus, that faction either is going to cause trouble down the road on every big thing, maybe even every medium or small thing, or it could be replicated by a different small group of Republicans of a different political complexion that decides to stop the train on its tracks for something else, like government spending the debt ceiling, military authorization. And when you have a narrow margin like the U.S. House Republican Conference has, such a narrow margin in its majority, really any subset of the House Republican Conference has veto power. To a lesser extent, they're kind of like Joe Manchin. Any group of five in the U.S. House, they can stop the majority from moving. There was some serious drama, as you noted, on the House floor Friday night, uh, which included an argument that almost turned into a fistfight. Um, what happened there? Could you explain to us what, what the situation was? Let me explain, first of all, that the reason why we got a perspective on that was because on Friday night, before a House speaker was chosen and before the House fully organized itself, there really were no rules prohibitions on the C-SPAN cameras. So usually you don't get different angles or perspectives on the U.S. House floor. Usually it's very limited based on House rules. Well, the House rules weren't fully in place Friday night because there was no speaker or rules package. So we got all these great angles and, and it was like a football game. You had cutaway cameras, wide cameras, close-up cameras, everything short of a pylon and a sideline camera on the House floor. So you saw a near physical confrontation at all hours of the night, Friday night. Alabama Republican Mike Rogers, who's been around here a long time, was seen in a heated conversation of some sort in the direction of Matt Gates of Florida, who was part of, if not the leader of that faction of 20 that had broken away from Kevin McCarthy. And you see Congressman Rogers getting physically held back around the neck and mouth by one of his Republican colleagues from North Carolina. This was just part of the theater that it was Friday night. But I, I think it underscores something else. 
that not only is there some level of bad blood or acrimony that showed its head on Friday night, how much is that acrimony going to go away over the next two years? You know, in other walks of life, bad blood is bad blood. And it doesn't evaporate overnight. I'm wondering how much of this next Congress is defined by episodes like that. I was wondering, I had a similar thought on Friday night, whether this had to do with just the fact that everyone was so cranky because they've been, you know, basically doing this for 20, I think 21 hours was the accumulated amount of hours that they had spent on the House floor debating this, or whether this was actually a serious rift in the GOP. Do you think it had more to do with just the mood? at 11 p.m. on Friday night, still trying to get this passed through than it does any sort of serious rift in the Republican Party? Or do you think this is something we're going to see going forward for the next two years? I think it's I think it's both. I could see right. from my perch in the chamber throughout the course of those four days that there was clearly a growing level of frustration and fatigue in the body language of members of Congress. And, um, the freshness and spirit that pervaded the chamber on the first day had kind of diminished by Friday. And, and first of all, not everybody was sitting through all those votes anymore come Friday. And yeah, you could tell from the, the leaning and, 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 and the, the sitting down in chairs that people were getting fatigued. That was no doubt part of the calculus here is keep running this through until fatigue gives McCarthy enough leverage to win. And if that wasn't part of the calculus, perhaps it just was a, a subsequent reaction to sitting through four days of marathon votes. And each one of those votes took more than an hour. I mean, those were painstaking votes, not to mention all the back and forth between them. So fatigue was a thing. I think that may have caused part of what you saw in terms of the animation on the floor Friday night. But I also think that you just don't, that doesn't just wash away over the course of a few days. And I'm wondering what whatever fractured relationships were caused by this speakership debate don't remain and become part of the politics of the 118th Congress in the House. What was the mood like? in the house in the from your perch in the chamber uh, either when those when that near altercation happened or when what was the mood like from McCarthy and his supporters when they finally pushed him th- over the line what was it like being there i think there's a genuine sense of relief um, throughout friday night as, the, as, as it became cl- it became clear midday Friday this was heading in a good trajectory for Kevin McCarthy and you could right. you could sense the relief among his key allies and his key whips. I had to tell you though, what struck me more over the course of seventy two to ninety six hours of watching this was the lack of stress and strain on House Democrats. It wasn't a celebratory mood, but you could tell there was they're reveling in it. It, it kind of were. I think, I mean, I think so. I think they were, they were, they were the weight of the world was off their shoulders type of look in the eyes of Nancy Pelosi or in the way she was carrying herself in the next to last row in the house chamber. Like this is your problem, not mine. And the unanimity with which Democrats voted each time for their caucus leader, Hakeem Jeffries, it was almost like a no lose situation. And they recognized the longer this played out, the more hours that went by of acrimony, they felt themselves to be in a better political position than they were the hour before. The weaker the Republican speaker might be, the weaker the Republican conference would appear and might be. There was nothing but upside for the Democrats throughout those four days. And it also, I saw this this written a lot in reporting and in punditry that uh, Nancy Pelosi was a master at vote counting. She knew whenever she brought you know a bill to the floor, she knew exactly how many votes it was going to get. And there was some criticism of Kevin McCarthy that he 
came up for his speakership vote and didn't have the votes to bring him over the line. Does that say anything about his future as speaker? I've heard that a lot. And I, th- I think I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think we've heard Kevin McCarthy criticized for allowing a vote to go to the floor that he didn't know he could win or that he knew would fail and that previous speakers would never do that. I, my counter to that is he didn't bring it to the floor. This vote brought itself to the floor. It was mandated. I mean, the, 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 the rules require a 12 p.m. January 3rd vote for speaker and that he didn't have the votes locked in by then. Um, that's a statement about his efforts before January 3rd, but he didn't decide to bring the vote at that moment in time and not realize he was going to lose or not realize the consequences he was going to lose. This brought this vote brought itself to the floor. And Kevin McCarthy, after 15 rounds, can claim victory. But what I think is going to define the next few months, certainly the next few days, is what consequences there to the infighting. Mm. What what happens next when you have one part of your conference openly warring with another inside a fishbowl before the nation's cameras? We'll see. Right. Maybe nothing. Or maybe this is paralyzing. Over the course of the week, Kevin McCarthy had these uh, Republican rebels. There was about 20 of them. And in order to gain their support or at least get them to vote present, he made a series of concessions uh, to them. Do we know what he gave away at this point to get that job? I was explaining this to somebody who's not in the in the, in the world of politics and media like you and I are. And, it, and they said, this, this doesn't make any sense. We had all that drama last week over things like 72-hour voting windows before major legislation, <laughs> germaneness <laughs> tests, a rules committee posts, really inside baseball stuff, right? Or parliamentary yeah. stuff. I mean, what I think this group has secured itself is an ability now to get its fingerprints on more, if not all, of the legislation that goes through um, the U.S. House floor. And that's important as a as a pathway moving forward over the next two years, almost like, let's fight this battle now so we don't have to fight piecemeal battles over legislation down the road. But none of this is something that, you know, speaks the voices of of millions of Americans and their needs and wants at this moment. I mean, I think one of the concerns is the lack of transparency inside the Republican conference themselves. We heard Nancy Mace from South Carolina say this, this, this seems swamp-like for a group of Republicans who say they're trying to drain the swamp, doing this in the middle of the night with a lack of transparency on all fronts. And by the way, one of the things this group was zealously pushing for was an end of the middle of the night surprises in legislation. And we had a speaker vote that happened in the middle of the night. And also, it should be noted that this was a group of 20 people. So it was a minority of the Republican conference, including uh, people like Lauren Boebert, who narrowly won their last election, which is something that uh, McCarthy allies pointed out a lot. Uh, do you get a sense of how much anger there is still at these 20 GOP rebels, at people like Matt Gates, who I think some of the others, like Chip Roy, were seen to have valid grievances? Matt Gates is not really seen as one of those, as far as I can tell. He's seen more as, as doing this to really get his name in headlines. Is there anger among Republicans about that? I think there's a recognition among the members and staff with whom I speak that there was quite a bit of diversity inside that group of 20, that there were certain members who were um, in good in good faith at the negotiating table and truly were talking about consistent procedural issues like voting windows, how long to have 
legislation in your hands before you vote on it. What the procedures of this U.S. House will be. And there were others who seemed to be more motivated by visceral, if not personal, concerns with Kevin McCarthy or House leadership. And there's a recognition that there's there were, this was not a monolithic, synchronized group of 20 all speaking with one voice. Is there anger? There certainly was anger. Some of that might have been driven by the fatigue or the hour of the night. But I'll say it again. Bad blood is bad blood. Once formed, it doesn't immediately cool off. It doesn't immediately settle. And I still think that's the defining issue in the first few months of this House Republican conference is how much can they put this behind them? Can they put this right. behind them? How much will this cause a rift that resurfaces on big things? But I'll tell you something else that really strikes me as important at this moment. It's what Democrats are saying. Richie Neal, former chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Brendan Boyle, top Democrat, House Budget Committee, both explicitly expressing concern about the debt ceiling. Because this group of, of, of 20, a smaller group of five or six House Republicans could block passage of raising the debt limit, which causes cataclysmic impacts on our economy. That's coming. That date is coming somewhere in the summer, maybe the late summer, early fall. And that's one thing the House has to do. They have to pass legislation to raise it or the cataclysm ensues. There are other things this House Republican conference can do and pass that will just evaporate into the air because the Senate's not going to do it. The president's not going to act on it. Some of it'll just be messaging bills. That's one thing they have to do. And this episode over the speakership vote really stirs up the haunting Jaws music that's going to be circling around Congress come summer. On that note, I've heard Kevin McCarthy referred to by some Republicans, by uh, some of the media, as a speaker in name only, Spino. Just a cute little twist. How handcuffed do you think Kevin McCarthy and the Republican-controlled Congress is going to be now? Are they going to be able to get anything done aside from, you know, occasional ceremonial investigations of Hunter Biden? Any group can block anything this conference does. You need only five people to block action. That's a real small number. It actually was the same number that was true over the past Congress for Democrats. And Nancy Pelosi was able to move legislation pretty aggressively, pretty thoroughly. Um, so let's see if a different faction forms. If a faction of moderates, purple seat freshmen or veteran members of Congress has real heartburn about something, they can join with the Democrats and block or pass something. If any subset of this group of 20 gets frustrated again or intransigent again, they can block things. That's going to impact the speaker's power. It's going to impact the speaker's desires and hopes legislatively and administratively in the House. I think that's the defining storyline. How can they govern after what we saw as the first act of this Republican House conference a failure over four days to just choose a speaker. Trump took credit, of course, for McCarthy getting over the line. And that was interesting because a couple of days earlier, he had endorsed McCarthy, was calling Republicans, these defectors, to try and get them to back McCarthy. And it didn't seem like it was doing anything. But then when McCarthy did go over the line, Trump took credit. McCarthy thanked him. How much do you think Trump's influence had any sort of effect here? Do you think it worked? I got big questions about the legitimacy of his impactfulness in this speaker's race because we were staking out the meetings, the meetings outside Tom Emmer's office, the new Republican whip, where 
key players were walking in, key players were walking out. They were talking to us about what was important. They never once seemed to breathe Trump's name in an impactful way, as if Trump wasn't a figure in the negotiations. Trump wasn't relevant to the discussions coming in and out of those meetings. So for those who credit him, I'd like to hear more about what granular level of impact Donald Trump had, because they just weren't breathing his name going in and out of the meetings that would ultimately save Kevin McCarthy, his speakership, and would bridge this gap between the McCarthy team and this, at one point, stubbornly anti-McCarthy group that eventually voted for him or allowed him to pass through. Right. I mean, I remember last week when Trump endorsed McCarthy and Matt Gates, who, along with a lot of these GOP rebels, are very pro-Trump members of Congress. And Matt Gates mocked Trump for backing McCarthy and had sort of a snide comment about it and said it doesn't change my perspective at all. And I was pretty shocked to see even those most pro-Trump members of Congress sort of dismiss Trump's endorsement as having any relevance. Not that it was a you know, a net negative, just right. that it was irrelevant, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't like he was playing badly in the room necessarily. We haven't heard that come out of the, the people in the meetings. Not that he was, you know radioactive to the people who were supporting him or opposing him, just that he wasn't being discussed. And I think that may be that may be the most frustrating thing to Trump at all, as all of all, is that he wasn't relevant to the conversation. He wasn't right. being talked about on cable news. And I wonder how he's going to react to that. It's tough to puppeteer the halls of Congress from Mar-a-Lago, but uh, he's certainly trying. Now, do you have a sense of how McCarthy feels about all of this? Do you think he's relieved to just have the job or do you think he's to some extent embarrassed or humiliated by the process? I think it's a binary thing. You're the speaker or you're not. No matter how you went about getting it, you right. got it. Um, there's an old phrase about um, a guy who won an election by one vote. You know, I only won by one vote, but I won. And so I'm still the governor. I'm still the senator. I'm still the congressman. Uh, he he went through 15 rounds, but he still has the gavel, the apparatus, the extra um, impact on everything that happens in administratively in the Congress and politically inside his conference. Um, but can't get past this reality that four or five people can stop him at any turn. And one of his concessions was to make it easier for any member at any moment to hold a new vote on who should be speaker. It's going to hang over his head for a while, but it would be hard to imagine he didn't secure at least a bit of a honeymoon from this group that eventually said his name on the House floor. And those who clearly opened the gate to let him through at the last minute, there has to be some bandwidth, some some playing field they're going to afford him over the coming weeks or months. That's right. I think I heard McCarthy say at one point that his father once told him it's not how you start something, it's how you finish it. And uh, that certainly applies here. Now, you just dropped some news on George Santos, the Republican representing Long Island, who basically made up everything about his personal and professional life during his run for Congress. Tell us about that story. Well, George Santos benefited indirectly from this speakership brouhaha because he ended up flying below the radar for a few days, a few impactful days, his first few days in Washington, when he has yet to answer for so many alleged lies about his background, his education, his work, his finances, um, his political support. And a Federal Elections Commission complaint has been filed by the Campaign Legal Center, one of the uh, nonprofit um, organizations that helps monitor election filings in America. And 
their complaint, 50 pages long, is just chock full of things that are on the public record. Questions about a loan he cut himself as a candidate in twenty in the 2022 cycle for nearly $700,000. Campaign complaint says, your last financial disclosure is you earned about $50,000 a year in salary. Where did the $700,000 come from? A provocative rhetorical question. Where did the $700,000 come from? Also, a series, almost by the dozen, of expenses for $199.99 by his campaign for things that would never conceivably cost that unique dollar amount, like parking or a luxury hotel. That's one penny below the threshold from which he'd have to provide receipts or documentation. And there's some question about his apartment. Was he using campaign money for an apartment in which he lived, which is expressly prohibited? in federal campaigns or else everybody would have their home office as their campaign headquarters and use campaign donor money to pay the mortgage. This has all been accepted and received by the Federal Election Commission, which presumably will undertake an investigation. But just add that to the list of woes for George Santos of uh, Long Island. Right. And an investigation, I think we're getting rebooted in Brazil as well. What was he like on his first couple of days? I saw some photos of him sort of sitting alone in Congress, uh, him walking around, not asking, answering questions of reporters. What were his first days, a couple days like? Well, I, I was among those walking around trying to get him to answer questions. He would not answer any. He would walk past the cameras and keep on pursuing an exit strategy. One question he did not answer from one reporter who was near me is, is your real name George Santos? Oh, my. No, yes. No, no. No answer to that question. He sat the first day, Tuesday, the first day of the new Congress in the back row alone in a corner for part of the afternoon. Eventually, he started gravitating in the chamber toward that group of 20 that was defecting from Kevin McCarthy. He didn't join their voting. He still voted for McCarthy um, consistently. But he was just moving his way around the way new people do and trying to find a place to situate himself, trying to find a home God. in the chamber. It That's almost a big makes you fat... feel bad for him. To a degree. It made you feel like middle school all over again. Right. Yeah. But it, I think it's a metaphor for what this could be like over these two years, just trying to find a home uh, politically yeah. in this Congress. The House on Friday marked two years since the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. I don't want to embarrass you here, but I think I don't think there are many reporters who have covered the fallout from the attack as thoroughly and as impressively as you have. And I've been following your reporting for uh, the last two years on this from when you were at the NBC affiliate now to your time at CBS News. What is the status of all of those criminal investigations now? Uh, what is happening uh, you know, from the Justice Department to uh, the House uh, in terms of the efforts to have accountability for what happened that day? It's the largest criminal investigation in American history. It's the largest criminal prosecution in American history. The congressional review of it was unprecedented in American history. This warrants every bit of coverage it's getting. And bottom line is, we may just be getting started with the prosecutions. Um, There have been 950 people charged, approximately, in the first two years after January 6, 2021. There's an expectation, almost a projection from federal investigators, that there are hundreds more arrests to come. And that doesn't include possible, for lack of a better phrase, higher level defendants or higher level prosecutions. I don't want to. I don't want to go too, I don't want to go down a road here where I start naming names, but you can assume that when I say higher level prosecutions, I'm talking about people who may be accused of insurrection 
inspiring or giving comfort, aid, or support to insurrectionists. Um, so this, to a degree, has a lot of football field in front of it still. So right. if, you've, if you've got 950 defendants so far, there are hundreds more possible, potentially, potentially high-level defendants who have a case that could you know, de- command headlines for months or years because federal cases take months or years. There's a lot of green ahead of us. And I'm trying to stay mindful of that. Right. That what we've seen so far of the 950 defendants is a number of particularly high-level charges, seditious conspiracy, assaulting police, a conspiracy to obstruct an official congressional proceeding. These are these are charges you never hear. Um, but also an awful lot of low-level misdemeanor charges. Right. People right. who are caught on their, you know, you know how they were caught by posting selfies on Facebook and leaving them up. You know how they were caught because there's a thousand and one, and that may be an underestimate, cameras around yeah. the Capitol complex or in people's phones through the course of an attack on the U.S. Capitol. Some of these right. cases were low-hanging fruit. There yeah. is a lot more fruit to bear. And, and, and that's where that's where things get, I think, particularly interesting, is when you see a higher-level charge, like seditious conspiracy, and you see somebody plead guilty to it, and there have been a number of defendants who pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy, what are they offering up in return mm. for that plea deal? What are they... What are they giving to make this worth everybody's time? Is it just right. to make it easier to ch- to try the other defendants charged with seditious conspiracy, or is this headed somewhere else? And now there's a special counsel, an independent counsel, Jack Smith, investigating January 6th. There's so much, so much road ahead of us, and I try to stay attentive to that because there's a lot of other news going on, and we need to keep track of the biggest criminal investigation in American history. So I, I, I love that you said that because I watch a lot of Fox News, I follow a lot of conservative media, and there's been a repeated uh, narrative over the last basically two years since the attack happened. And, you know, when, when the attack first happened, conservative media was like, this is horrifying. This is one of the worst things that's ever happened. A lot of people said that Donald Trump was directly to blame for it. And uh, after that, it started to soften. And now there are complaints that the media is still covering this. And I agree that sometimes punditry about it can get a little tedious and a little cloying. But the reporting about it, like the reporting that you do, is absolutely fundamentally necessary. Because, as you said, this is the biggest criminal prosecution in history. And it's also a massive, massive story. A horde of people got egged on by a president, stormed a Capitol, beat police officers. A number of them died. A number of them committed suicide after the attack. I mean, just a a massive, massive story that deserves a lot more coverage. I do want to ask, I know you said you didn't want to go down the road of naming names, but I would love if you could give us some indication of where you think that special counsel investigation and maybe the Justice Department investigation, where that might go in terms of focusing on some of the bigger names that were involved with this. With a special counsel name and with grand juries sitting right now here in the District of Columbia looking into January 6th, it seems pretty clear, even though it's a pretty opaque uh, system. It seems pretty clear they're not looking into people who came there, took a selfie, stepped in the Capitol for a few minutes and walked back out. That's not what's in their sights now. 
The Justice Department may still charge more of those cases, but that's not why you bring in a special counsel and why you have multiple seated grand juries over the course of months and years looking into January 6th. It's because there's the potential of some prosecution that would otherwise be viewed as potentially political. That's why you need a special counsel. Right. If the investigations go on for months and years, it's not because somebody stepped in the Capitol with their cell phone and walked back out. It's because there are potentially elaborate cases to come. And we see who the grand jury talks to because they walk in and out of the courthouse. It's members of the Trump inner circle of the Trump White House. So there's a potential that somebody very close in the inner inner circle or Trump himself at some point is indicted. I mean, that's it's not, it's, I'm not the first one to say that, but that's also why you have to keep watching this pathway because it all has a nexus to January 6th. Mm. Um, and, and also, <laughs> when, I, when I try to explain the importance of the ongoing criminal cases, even in the lower level charges, uh, even in the lower level cases, it's because you can see things there. Um, I, on January 5th, 2023. One of the low-level misdemeanor defendants or lower-level defendants came through for sentencing. Her name was Tammy Bronzeberg. Her case couldn't be more run-of-the-mill compared to the other 950. But at her sentencing, the judge pressed her, you know, why, why did you do this? What, what about Donald Trump made you want to do this, put your life on the line and be part of this January 6th attack? And her response was so telling. She said, I, I, I've been reflecting on that lately. And Donald Trump didn't make my life better. Donald Trump made my life worse. And I don't know why I did it. I hadn't heard anybody else ever say that in a January 6th sentencing. And I've listened to most of them, nearly all of them. Two years later, what does that tell us? That we suddenly hear January 6th defendants saying things like that, becoming more withering or critical of the former president. The first batch would never mention his name. Right. For some of the first batch were unequivocal and still defending the former president. So when you watch these cases go through the courts and you keep tracking them, you may see a trajectory towards somewhere else politically. You may see the Justice Department show its cards in some way, reference that it has more cases to come, X, Y, or Z more cases to come. So we have to be meticulous as media in following what happens with this unprecedented set of prosecutions because there are clues or there are just outward words that you want to see and look for. Well, Scott, please keep reporting on all of that because your coverage is so exceptional on these uh, subjects. And uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Best part of my day. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Scott McFarlane on Mediaite.com.